ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Lock your Soyuz hatch and put your helmet on. Chris Hadfield was not the first person in space. Chris Hadfield wasn't even the first person to play guitar in space. But his occasional musical interludes broadcast from the International Space Station in 2013, his third mission in orbit, helped make him famous and prompted a worldwide reinvigoration of interest in space exploration. The Canadian astronaut is now, among other things, an author. His latest book is a Cold War thriller called The Apollo Murders. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Colonel Chris Hadfield from his home in Canada for the big interview. Colonel Chris Hadfield, welcome to the big interview. Andrew, it is a pleasure to be speaking with you again, and I trust you're well. I am, thank you. I want to start before we get on to Chris Hadfield, the fighter pilot and the astronaut, with Chris Hadfield, the novelist. The Apollo Murders, it's a proper thriller, and it is set in space. Did a thriller come naturally to you as the genre to go into? Because the traditional thing to write when you have people confined in a space, people who may not have known each other all that well and have just been thrown together, is some sort of sitcom. Uh, Yeah, friends in orbit, right? I guess you could go with upstairs, downstairs. But no, uh, I was really taken throughout my entire life by reading the really good thriller action fiction authors. You know, uh, there's been so many uh, that, that I've just really enjoyed. And imagine, Andrew, that you had spent six months away from the Earth on board a spaceship. It is such a revelationary and compelling human experience. What do you do with it? How do you let people in on it? And what the interpersonal tensions are like and what human behaviors it could lead to. I thought it would be a real challenge, especially during the pandemic, to see if I could write a a thriller action novel that that is in that setting. I think people will be really entertained by the story because it's it's historical fiction. Almost everything that's in the book really happened. But then the plot that I came up with twists through all those events. I'm really happy with how it came out. I hope a lot of a lot of readers around the world will enjoy it also. Because I think a lot of readers around the world will also be wondering to what extent those personal dynamics are directly informed by your own experiences aboard spacecraft, because obviously there is no surer way to get to detest another human being than to be confined in very close quarters with them for a long period. And I do realise that the people we send into space thoroughly tested to be perhaps slightly more patient and psychologically together than the the rest of us. But as far as you know, what is the closest one astronaut has ever come to at least thinking about bumping off one of their colleagues? One of the cosmonauts who flew in the 70s decided just as he went into quarantine in Baikonur in the Southern Soviet Union at the time to keep a diary. And he just called his book Diary of a Cosmonaut. His name was Lebedev. And it is a descent into madness. That They had terrible support from mission control in Moscow and very little empathy from Earth. And they ended up mutinying and having fistfights on board and not talking to Earth for long periods. And and it was kind of the watershed worst moment 
of how we shouldn't conduct space flight. And we learned a huge amount from that. Even the American Skylab crew mutinied in the late 70s because they just weren't getting what they needed from Earth. Did you develop yourself particular coping strategies if you ever reached a point when on the space station in particular, if if you found yourself becoming exasperated with either one of your colleagues or the environment or your situation generally? Because obviously just deciding stop this, I want to get off is not an option. Obviously, it should start well in advance. And, you know, I was hired as an astronaut. I showed up in Houston back in the 90s, August 92, I guess. And I looked around at the 23 other brand new astronaut candidates that I was seated with. And I realized this is the group that I'm going to trust with my life and, and they're going to trust you know me with theirs. And, and some of us are going to die doing these things. And, and I need to start building relationships now. And for my 21 years as an astronaut, all of the cosmonauts and other countries' astronauts, I, I tried to keep that in mind that some random subset of us are going to be in space together. And every bridge, every means of trust and communication we can set up in advance is going to serve us well once we get to orbit. But then once you're there, I think it just requires a really renewed sense of common purpose and a renewed sense of empathy and willingness to put yourself second or third or fifth and to communicate. By doing all of those things, all three of my space flights and when I lived under the ocean in a research habitat, we never had a, like an emotional interpersonal conflict. We had lots of arguments about technical things, but it never got to the base and uncontrollable and angry f types of human behaviors. But partially that's selection. A lot of it, though, is just anticipation and constant daily work and personal patience and uh, not making yourself the most important person on the spaceship. I mean, this, of course, is, is very far from your first experience of having to interact with people and trust people in a high stakes and uncertain environment. You become an astronaut by way of having been a fighter pilot. I want to go back to that point now, given that I think for certainly for a lot of young boys as they grow up, and I don't claim myself as an exception, the idea of becoming a fighter pilot does occur to you along the way. But do you recall your first inkling as somebody who actually went through with it and became one of thinking, I would like to be a fighter pilot. I don't know how pragmatic a nine-year-old boy can be. You know, they have their own particular version of, or nine-year-old girl, pragmatism. And I'm happy to say now that there are lots of fighter pilots, irrespective of gender around the world, Canada, even the United States now. So, but I think it's the same in that when you're young and start to become aware of the world, some things excite you and some things bore you endlessly. And when I was that little nine-year-old, I was just fascinated by the space race and what was going on. And so I took the next pragmatic step. And that was, okay, if I want to be Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin or Yuri Gagarin, then what do I need to do? And they flew in space and they were pilots and fighter pilots. And I thought, wow, I could be an astronaut and a fighter pilot. That sounds like a pretty cool pairing. But I also realized the odds were horrible. And Buzz Aldrin had a PhD out of MIT. I thought, okay, so I'll, I'll need to combine these things. So I went to the military academies. And then I became a pilot as a teenager through an air cadet program, much as, as you have in the UK. And then I went through selection and qualified and, and became one of Canada's very first F-18 pilots as a combatant in the Cold War. 
a hard road to get to. We don't have very many, but a big challenge, a, a huge amount of service required, hard on the family, remote locations, but a fascinating job, extremely technical, but at the same time, in my particular case, a stepping stone on the way to what I was really dreaming of, which was maybe someday flying in space. See, I think I was also that nine-year-old, although I think if I recall rightly, I wanted to fly F-111s for the Royal Australian Air Force. And I was I was denied that opportunity only by a, a combination of bone idleness and basic lack of coordination. But I need to interrupt then. I flew a 111. <laughs> as, a, as a test pilot, I got to fly a 111 and, and, uh, and take it out to the test range. What a, what a, you would have loved flying it. What a beast of a a machine, like a, like flying a big rhinoceros. No, now you are just gloating, but you have kind of preempted my next question. When you get to the point of being able to fly an F-18 or, or indeed an F-5, as I know you did as well, I mean, basically compared to what the nine-year-old you would have imagined, how cool actually is it? What you experience, Andrew, is an incredible new freedom to be able to move effortlessly in three dimensions with the flick of, of the pressure of your fingertips to be instantaneously away from the earth and up and anywhere you want to go and tumble and cartwheel. And, you know, the, the John McGee poem of high flight of, you know, effortlessly in the in the untrespassed sanctity and the halls and all that um, up, up the delirious burning blue. That's what it feels like to have even beyond what a bird has, I think, an exhilaration. And every time I flew a high-performance airplane, and I still get to fly Spitfires occasionally now, you, you have that wonderful sense of, of luck and privilege and freedom that is denied to us as bipedal, you know, two-dimensional earth walkers. And you'll come back to earth and you'll never be the same. You did fly, as you said, during the Cold War, and I know you, you did fly, I think, the first intercept of a, a Soviet Tu-95 bomber over the Arctic, but nevertheless, was the fact of never having flown an actual combat mission a disappointment to you? Well, those were combat missions. I mean, it was an armed bear bomber and an armed F-18, and I was too... Uh, switch throws away from releasing weapons, and they had weapons trained on me. But you're right, we never actually fired weapons in anger, which I'm very thankful for. And that's sort of the point, right? If you can prove you can defend yourself adequately, then you know it's like locking the doors of your home or, or uh, scaring away a predator. Then you've really accomplished the objective. You don't want to get into fangs and claws. So the stakes were extremely high. The tension was extremely high. And because it was a new airplane, a new F-18, it was still an untested quantity. So no, I don't regret at all. I, I took my job extremely seriously. I held alert. We were scrambled in the middle of the night from dead sleep to airborne in an F-18 in the length of time that you and I have already been talking. And then a scramble in the dark of night over the North Atlantic waters to intercept what could be a bomber on, on its first delivery run of cruise missiles to attack North America or just another training mission. So, so yeah, it was tense time for all that period. Earlier in this interview, you've already described the experience of taking off and flying in a, a fighter plane in terms that make me wish I'd paid more attention in physics classes. But to go from that to your, your first blast-off uh, in 1995 aboard the Atlantis shuttle to dock with the, the Russian space station Mir, is there a way you can describe to somebody who has 
never experienced it and has, frankly, very little chance of ever experiencing it, what it feels like to be aboard that thing as they start counting down from 10 to zero. I think most people have been in a very powerful car or and a lot of people have been in, a, in an airliner and you know what it's like sitting at a red light or sitting on the runway and you put the throttle all the way to maximum and you get pretty firmly pressed into your seat. Well, in an F-18, in a fighter airplane, when you do that, it's like five times more powerful and you are truly thrown into your seat with full afterburner. Well, a space shuttle was almost 250 times more powerful than that. And so the, the raw, unmitigated wildness of the horsepower and, and raw brute force of a space shuttle, which had 80 million horsepower, if you can believe it. You know, a brand new Jaguar, 500 horsepower, 80 million horsepower. And, and you, are, you are aware of just how minuscule you are. It's just your brain that is important at that point, because it is staring at the 500 instruments and, and, and switches and trying to detect a failure early enough that you can keep the whole thing from tearing itself to pieces. You're this little cognizant, little thinking corpuscle in the middle of this gigantic dinosaur that is trying to nut you in its jaws and just trying to shake you all to pieces. can't even focus on the instruments because the, the brute force vibrations are so high. You have to grab on and pull your head and let your uh, head forwards and let your neck soak it up just so you can see the instruments without them vibrating and blurring in front of you. And by the time you clear the launch tower, you're going 100 miles an hour straight up. You go through the speed of sound in 45 seconds. The vehicle just, it's so violent. You know, you're, you're a little nothing in the middle of it. But after two minutes, you're above the air. The huge solid rockets have emptied and they're out of fuel and they've dragged you above it. They explode off and now you're kind of free of the tumult. And now you're above the, the roughness and the turbulence of the Earth's atmosphere. And then for the next six minutes, it's just this hard, heavy acceleration. Now you're no longer shaken, but it's as if more and more people are piling on top of you or someone was pouring cement on you until at the end of it, you can barely breathe. And we have to bring the throttles to idle to keep from tearing the shuttle in half. But finally, after eight and a half minutes, the vehicle has done its job and taken you to just the right altitude, speed and direction and the engine shut off and you're weightless. <laughs> it sounds though that was kind of tiring and alarming just to listen to, never mind experience. But at that moment, when you, when you get to the peak of that ascent, and you know, I, I know people like to project all kinds of ideas upon people who've been to space about sort of great insights that must have descended upon them. But I just wonder about that first moment when you realise. I'm actually in space. Is that something that the mind is readily able to process? I mean, I know you've trained for it and you've practiced it and you've rehearsed it ad infinitum for years and years and years, but nonetheless, is there still an aspect of it which takes some acclimatizing to? The events are so momentous and so big and so significant that your emotions get trapped behind you somewhere. 
And also you have such a critical job to do. You're flying this machine. You know, you're not some joyrider at the fair. You're, you're actually the crew that makes this thing work. And the second the engine shut off, you now have a list of 50 critical things to do to, you know, get rid of the external tank and get pointed the right way and check that it hasn't sprung a leak, you know, all of the, and set up communications. And But the human reaction is there. And in fact, we all laugh. If you were sitting in that studio in London there and imagine that five people had been jumping up and down on you for the last eight and a half minutes and suddenly they disappeared and you were now flying weightless around the world, you'd be gobsmacked and and start laughing because weightlessness is such a fun joy. And also it's nice because the beating has stopped. And so everybody's sort of, you know, there's relief that it didn't kill you today. So the immediate human reaction is one of of laughter and relief. You are also hyper aware of the fact that you have now crossed a threshold that is one of the rarest in human history. And you're now part of a group of people that is going to see something that is brand new for our species. And it's kind of the result of everything we've invented that's allowed us to get to that perspective. So there's this inrush of a sense of awe and that it's it's not going to go away. This isn't a momentary thing. No one's ever going to be able to take this away. This is now part of your life experience. And so it's time to really turn yourself into a, you know, a, a sponge and try and absorb this difference and, and look at the world and feel the weightlessness and try and really understand who and where and, and what this is and, you know, become, don't miss it in, you know, the transient nature of it. Really really try and internalize it and make it part of who you are. Does it prompt, though, a different way of thinking about problems, especially of necessity? And I know military people are trained to be self-reliant and to adjust to circumstances and make do as best they can with whatever resources are available. But you are also in the position of having made, I think, the proverbial Houston, we have a problem call in 2001. I think this is your first spacewalk outside the International Space Station and something goes horribly askew. And I think anybody who reads about that ends up wondering how on earth do you keep your head together at that moment? And I guess my question is, do you just keep your head together because what choice do you have? I mean, panic is not an option at that point, is it? I slowly learned over the years that there's a time to panic and there is a time where you can't afford to because it will make things worse. I was a downhill ski racer for a few years and then taught downhill racing. And when you're coming down through a slalom course or a downhill skiing course at top speed, you can't be thinking about anything but that. You know, it doesn't really matter. The next gate is the or the next two gates. That's all that matters. And you need to allow yourself somehow to the learned ability to strip away everything else and just pay attention to this goal, these objectives right now. And what can I do to succeed right now? I think the other piece from being able to focus, Andrew, is the to have learned early on that there is a difference between danger and fear. And we tend to blur them even in the way that we refer to them, like that must be a scary thing, as if things are scary. But things are never scary. Just sometimes people are scared because a given thing might cause fear in one person and not in another. So it's not the thing that's scary. It's a human reaction. And when you dig into what it is you're trying to do, get to the bottom of the slalom course or dock your spaceship, 
you need to somehow separate out what is the actual risk and danger to accomplish this objective. And then can I understand the dangers and the risk well enough that I no longer have a fear of it, that, that I'm not just relying on my instinctive uh, adrenaline push. And that's kind of how you get past it. It's not nothing you're born with and it's not throwing a switch. It's a slowly learned and nurtured understanding of the difference between danger and fear, and then also how to focus on the objective um, so that you can prioritize all of the things that you're gonna do next. That That's what I learned as a fighter pilot astronaut, but it's also then how I treat everything in life. Well, we should talk about, I guess, what becomes your greatest hit, uh, your version of David Bowie's Space Oddity as broadcast to the world from uh, the International Space Station on your longest mission in 2012-2013. Um, where did that idea come from, this idea of, I guess, trying to attract attention all over again to the fact that we do have people up there just sailing around our world, which it strikes me is something we have become extraordinarily complacent about? The idea came from Bowie fans around the world. When people knew that uh, I was up on the space station and writing and recording music with the guitar that's up there, and number one, I had never covered a Bowie tune in my life. He's such a good musician and such a complex musician. You can't just cover a Bowie tune. You know, it's not like Peter, Paul and Mary or something. And, you know, I didn't know the words, and, but I thought my son was the, was the genesis of it. He said, Dad, uh, learn the words, figure it out. Uh, and if you don't do it, you'll regret it forever. Everybody would, would like it. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Lock your Soyuz hatch and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Commencing countdown engines on. Detach from station, and may God's love be with you. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made the grave. So I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And at one point, the first step was just karaoke. I just, okay, I got David singing, you know, in one earpiece, and I just sang the words along with David. Um, but when I listened to that garage band individual voice track, it sounded far nicer than I had anticipated. The, he, he somehow intuitively knew what it was going to feel like to sing on board a spaceship. And he wrote the words that way, even though he wrote it before we walked on the moon, when he was just getting out of his teens. And so that really convinced me, wow, that song sounds right up here. And that's and then I re-recorded, put my guitar track underneath, Friends on Earth put the other instrumentals underneath, M. Griner stuck that beautiful piano intro. And then my son, Evan, said again, Dad, our audio is nice, but people aren't going to believe you did it in space. Make a video. So I sang along with our audio track floating around one afternoon. My son edited it all together with a friend of his and released it. And now hundreds of millions of people have done what you said. And that is 
seen the reality of spaceflight, maybe through a different lens. You know, I can draw graphs all day or talk about the physics of it or, or talk about the human experience, but music is a whole different way to transfer emotion and experience. And I think by covering that Bowie tune, it helped people see what it feels like on board a spaceship. There was also the aspect, I think, that it, it reminded people, and perhaps I don't know, perhaps even reminded astronauts, that that space exploration, though I realise it is extraordinarily difficult and dangerous and technical, and that it is something that everybody must pay meticulous, serious attention to at all times, but it is also this glorious, fabulous adventure um, that humanity has undertaken. Maybe we had all forgotten that we're allowed to to enjoy this? I don't know how this is creeping into memes and popular media, but uh, if you watch like First Man with Ryan Gosling or um, Ad Astra with uh, Brad Pitt, they're all so sad and grim. I, I don't know why. why. Where did they get that from? Space flight is joyous and magnificent and the ultimate you know, challenge. It's it's the ultimate arc of a heroic story, you know, great quest and, and difficulty and loss of life and personal risk and personal change and growth and then triumph. You know, it's it's a tremendous human adventure. Uh, and yet for some reason, uh, it, it's reduced to this ridiculous one dimensional wooden version of what it's truly like. And so, yeah, I think any way that that I can help to share the richness of this human exploration and where we're headed with it, you know, with our latest technologies and capabilities and what it means for us collectively, in amongst all the other noise and necessity of daily human life. To me, I'm, I'm in a unique position to share that. And, you know, it's why I wrote this novel. It's, it's why I, I kind of do a lot of things that I do just because of the rareness and the reality of the actual human spaceflight experience. I had the great good fortune a couple of years back of meeting Charlie Duke, the module commander of Apollo 16, uh, in Zurich at the Starmus Festival. I think we spoke briefly uh, at that as well. In fact, I'm sure we yeah. did. Um, and uh, General Duke was perfectly willing to admit that, yes, quite a lot of his internal monologue while actually on the moon, especially aboard the lunar rover, basically amounted to Yahoo. <laughs> well, he got to drive a dragster around on the moon, you know, a go-kart. <laughs> And Charlie was one of the youngest, I think maybe the youngest of all the moonwalkers of the 12 men that walked on the moon. Um, a great guy, a great spirit, got a twinkle in his eye. And But yeah, I think he, he wasn't, you know, he was obviously a technical test pilot, engineer, very competent, but he didn't miss uh, the joy of it. You know, he was a multidimensional and is a multidimensional person, you know, much like Alan Bean, who walked on the moon, who was also a really great painter and artist. You know, it's not just a bunch of robots up there. This is people. This is fun. This is cool. This is revelation. And, uh, and Charlie does a great job of sharing that. Well, just finally, and I do realise that the book we started out talking about is a partial answer to the question, but again, I think it's something that those of us who haven't been to space and are very unlikely ever to get to go do wonder about, that once you have been there and done it, um, is it difficult even for a period afterwards to actually rev yourself up about doing anything else? Is there any part of you that sort of, when you think about a new project or a new thing or something to try think, but I've already been to space. It makes you more aware. I think it broadens and deepens your understanding of everything. 
And so that's just a, a deeper richness with which to interpret and, and, you know, accomplish the rest of your life. You know, it, it's just uh, an incredible thing that was a large part of who I am. And it's given me now ideas and perspectives that otherwise I wouldn't have in order to shape the rest of my decisions in life. And, and you know, it, just because you taste a black forest cake, it doesn't mean that for the rest of your life, all food is, is pablum. You know, it's just like, wow, there are there are things that exist in the gastronomic world, you know, that are fantastic. And let's let's try and expand and, and see all of it that is there. I think it's sort of like that, but on every topic. That was Colonel Chris Hadfield. His book, The Apollo Murders, is available in paperback on October 12th. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. Do look out for next week's episode in which Monocle's Robert Bound sits down with the world-renowned photographer Tyler Mitchell. The Big Interview is produced by Emma Searle and edited by Steph Chungu. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.